Jesus is putting himself up as a contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember one of the things that Jesus really uh, hammers them about is they've built up this very rigorous system of laws and regulations and rituals that ended up oppressing people, crushing people, because you can't live up to it. Like, you can't live up to the law. You can't live up to all these requirements. So what's going to happen to you if you're, if let's say you're in a church, put it in our context, where the requirements are so high that you are just crushed by them. And you, if you don't live up to those standards, you're going to hell. What happens in that circumstance? You just get discouraged, right? It, you get crushed. The, it's, a, it's a crushing weight on the people. Whereas the gospel says, look, righteousness, holiness is absolutely critical. Sin is something that has to be dealt with and fought against. But we have forgiveness in Christ because we know we're going to fall short. We know we're going to fall short. And it's not our righteousness that we're depending on. It's the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And if we confess our sins and repent, while the standard is very high, there's grace and mercy and forgiveness. Think about that message in comparison to what the scribes and the Pharisees brought. That what they brought was oppressive regulation, oppressive rule-keeping. And what Jesus brought was forgiveness, mercy. So Jesus says, hey, if you're heavy laden, you're burdened by these standards that the Pharisees and the scribes are putting on you, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Does that make sense? How Jesus is such a contrast to the message of the Pharisees and the scribes, the elite of their world at that time. Chapter 12, what we're going into this morning, we're going to continue to see that conflict sharpen between Jesus and the religious elite. There's three specific areas that we're going to see in chapter 12 where this conflict grows. The first one that we'll look at, we're going to do verses 1 to 7, but really verses 1 to 14, there's conflict around the Sabbath. Then we'll see after that in coming weeks, conflict around where does this spiritual power that Jesus has come from? He's demonstrated that as king, he is authority over the spiritual powers of this world. But where does that come from? And then just his authority in general. People always marveled at the way he taught with such authority. The way he taught as one who, whose authority derived from within himself. Where did that come from? What we see is the authority of Jesus is supreme. The authority of Jesus is supreme. So in verses 1 to 7, one to seven we're going to look at, I'm going to read these verses for us all at once, but we're going to examine this in three different sections. First, we're going to talk about the people involved in the conflict. We'll read the story and then we'll talk about the people involved in the conflict. 
Second, we'll briefly talk, because it's pretty evident on the surface, the events that led to this conflict between these people. And then third, the lessons taught. The lessons taught. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. So there's a conflict here. Let's first of all talk about the people involved in the conflict. First and foremost, Jesus, right? Jesus is is the centerpiece here. Jesus is the one that the conflict revolves around because it's Jesus and then his disciples, his followers, that um, are the ones walking through the grain fields and picking these heads of grain and eating them. Um, and, And why do you think that the Pharisees, if their problem is with the disciples doing this, Jesus, why do you think Jesus is the one that they confront over the issue? Because they know he's the leader. They know that he's the, he's the one that these disciples, these people have gathered around. And we don't even know how many here that we're talking about. It's probably much more than just the 12, right? Jesus, uh, at this point in his earthly ministry, has large groups of people that are following him, that are following his teaching and have become followers, uh, followers of his. So you got Jesus and his disciples on one side and the Pharisees on the other. Now, we've talked about the Pharisees already this morning, but we don't want to assume that everybody knows who the Pharisees are. If, if you've studied the New Testament and particularly the Gospels a lot, then you're going to know pretty quickly a lot about the Pharisees. But if you're relatively new to studying the Bible, which some of us may be, it's important that we really get in our minds clearly who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' time. They were the ones who were considered to be experts in the law. They were, so we have our commentaries, right? Like anybody who studies the Bible knows that like you can go buy as many books as you want on any part of the Bible where, uh, they, uh, where people write out whole books helping you understand, just teaching you what's going on in the Bible and helping you understand it more. The Pharisees did that, but they did that from the position of being the authority. So it was, it was as if you went and bought a commentary that said, not just here's an idea of what this means, let me teach you, but it's, it was instead commentary on like, this is 
what this means. And this is what you must do in response to it. So they were experts, but they were experts with religious authority. They, they led the Jewish pe- people. But the problem is they were also legalists. Legalism means you're trying to earn your favor with God based on how well you keep the laws. The, the idea that if you are good enough, if you keep the laws well enough, you can be right with God. If you kept the Old Testament law, they would tell you, if you kept it as we do it, that is where righteous standing, a righteous standing before God comes from. The problem there is you can never meet the perfect standard of God. It doesn't matter how good you are. What the Bible teaches us is that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the message from the beginning of Genesis through Revelation is that the only way we are going to be right with God is through repentance and faith in his Messiah. Faith in him offering a substitutionary atonement. That the, the whole point of the Old Testament was to point everybody to the Messiah, the need for a savior, the need for God's grace and the need for God's mercy. And the Old Testament was, Paul calls it a tutor, a teacher. Paul in Galatians, Paul tells us that the Old Testament was a teacher to show us that earning salvation and righteousness through works is impossible. But the Pharisees completely missed the point. The Pharisees completely missed the point. And in their minds, they were righteous because of their observance of the law. And they put this burden upon everybody. That every, they put this burden upon everybody, and that's what was so crushing and oppressive. Any religion that says you can be right with God through your behavior is just going to crush you. It's going to be oppressive because you can't, right? And the only way, if you're honest with yourself, you recognize how sinful you are. If you're honest with yourself and you evaluate yourself correctly, you see just how sinful you are. And when you compare that up against the righteousness of God and his holy standard, it's oppressive, right? People who think they can be right with God through their actions, it's an illusion. They aren't being realistic about their own sinfulness. But that's who the Pharisees were. They were people who were legalists. They taught that you could be right with God through observing their rules and their regulations. And so you can see how when they have Jesus and his disciples doing what they considered to be illegal or wrong on the Sabbath, that's a huge issue for them. So let's talk more about that. Let's talk more about... Um, the uh, the events that led to um, this conflict. The events that led to the conflict. In verse 1 it says, at that time. 
So basically what, what that's telling us is that this is at the end of chapter 10, going into chapter 11, Jesus is going through the northern areas of Israel, through the Capernaum region, preaching in the synagogues, preaching in the cities, preaching the gospel of repentance. And so chapter 12 is really a continuation of that. When it says at that time, we know that Jesus is still up traveling city to city, um, synagogue to synagogue in the northern parts of Israel, preaching the gospel. Um, and in this particular circumstance, it's a Sabbath. Now, when was the Sabbath? What, what, what part of the week is the Sabbath? No, see, that's the tricky Saturday. part. It gets confusing, right? Saturday. Yeah, so sort of Saturday, but it gets even more confusing than that. Uh, the evening of Saturday and I think the morning of... Friday. We're getting closer. Evening. I think Fox maybe has it. It's from Friday evening until um, Sunday morning. Uh, almost, you're getting very close. Uh, Friday evening to Saturday evening. Perfect, there you go. So... Yeah, Friday evening, to, so like Friday at sunset to Saturday at sunset. That was the Sabbath time. Now, we recognize, we do our church stuff Sunday morning because it's celebrating. That's when Christ rose, was on a Sunday morning. And so that from after Christ rose, that's when his church started meeting on um, Sunday mornings, celebrating, remembering the resurrection of Christ. But um, what, what was the rule about this? First of all, where did the Sabbath come from? What's like the roots there? Uh, Genesis. Yeah. God created the world in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. He rested. It, it, and the Bible expands on that, that the Sabbath was created by God as a blessing for his creation, for his people to give rest, to, to help us remember that we are finite. We are not infinite. God didn't need rest. God, God does everything effortlessly. He didn't create the Sabbath for himself, for his own rest. He created it for us because one of the key, even though we are created in God's image, we are not God. We don't have just infinite energy. We need rest. The Sabbath was created for God's people to give them the day of rest. And it was a huge source of pride. I think there's really three things that, I mean, you could say there's probably more, but three big things, and Jesus is going to hit two of them really hard here. Three big things that the nation of Israel prided themselves on as a people. Sabbath, circumcision, in the temples, the temple worship, the temple religious rituals. These were things that really set them apart as the people of God, set them apart from the other nations. So you can see how just in here, in this passage, we've got two of those in major conflict, right? Um, because in order to protect the Sabbath, the Pharisees had set up this very extensive system of what you could or could not do. They went far beyond what the law prescribed, what the Bible actually prescribed. That's what the Pharisees were very notorious for. They, they would call it setting a fence around the law. It's like to be very, very careful 
that you don't ever come close to violating what the word of God says, we're going to build rules even beyond what the word of God says. I can't remember where it was. It was some sort of like, like program. I think it was Awana uh, at like Gateway. And they, they, they talked about this. And they said that it was like the Pharisees said the law was that you could not go on this particular slide on this playground. The Pharisees say you just can't go on the playground. Right. Like something. That's a great illustration, yeah. It's like, let's say God said monkey bars are sinful. Like, <laughs> you're a human, don't do monkey bars. Like, that's a sin. Let's just pretend God said that. The fair, that's exactly right. The Pharisees will be like, well, whew, we just want to keep people far from it, so just playgrounds are bad. Like, that's a great example. Like, God said it's a sin to drive a Chevy, the what? No, no, Ford. Ford? Okay. Way too expensive. The Pharisees would say, you know, let's just say it's wrong to drive any American-made vehicle, okay? Just keep so it. Where are they, communists? Maybe. Um, so, so that, that's exactly uh, right. That's a very good illustration here. And so, um, the, the, here we have the disciples. Verse 1 indicates that they were hungry, probably walking through like a field of wheat or barley. And because of that, they were picking the heads of wheat or barley, the heads of grain, and eating them. They, and the Pharisees, the ones who come up with these extreme rules, are the ones who object. And as Jesus so often does, he answers them with the word of God. I'm going to read the response from Christ here again for us. Verses three to seven. He says, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat or for those with him, but for the priest alone. Or have you not read in the law? See, this is great because let me stop right there. Have the Pharisees, remember, experts in the Old Testament. What he's referring to is 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21, David is fleeing from Saul and he um, stops. Let's see, it's at Nob, I believe. Let's see, I forget the, I thought I wrote that down here, but maybe not. 1 Samuel 21. Remember, Saul wants to kill him. And so David's fleeing Jerusalem. And David comes to Nob in chapter 21 and the priest Ahimelech. And David needs food. David and the people with him are hungry. And Ahimelech gives him the consecrated bread, the bread that was in the temple that was only for the priest to eat. Ahimelech gives that bread to David to eat. Now, the Pharisees, as experts, go ahead. Um, you know, we read about this earlier. Do you think it was something? And my mom said that it's like the reason you were Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, I think there's possibly two different things that come into play here. The fact that um, Ahimelech, like these... 
Ahimelech recognized that grace, mercy, triumphs over these symbolic regulations. And then also David is king, right? Or he's been anointed to take over as king after Saul. And so David's got authority. Like David's in a position of authority. Is it like a wild barley or wheat field? Or were people back then just allowed to walk in anyone's field and just pick grains on it? Yeah, so I'd, I'd have to go back and refresh myself on exactly the rules. Um, but I do believe poor, needy people were allowed. I think it's if you didn't take enough food for your journey, you were allowed to right. take Right, right. You can pick the head, but you can't like, use a, a sheep. Yeah, uh, the reaper thing. The thing. You can't use that. You can pass by and get a snack and eat it, but you can't like, take for home. For your yeah. Home. And also, uh, yesterday reading in the commentaries, if you go to chapter 2, verse 10, he does pray. The priest does pray to God to consult with him if it's okay. Oh, there you go. That's why, and part of the reason is not that Jesus is saying it's okay to break the law, but sometimes judge righteously, meaning there's some laws that supersedes others in the sense God's life, the David's life to fulfill the prophecies of Jesus had to live. Therefore, this consecrated bread that's only for a priest will, will supersede, his life will supersede this law. Right, right. That's breaking it, but it's just judging right. The more important thing, the bigger thing. How do you think the Pharisees? Do you think the Pharisees just happen to be in that field, or do you think they're like following? Oh yeah. Well, you got to remember, there's a lot of people following Jesus right now. Um, When you talk when you talk about the disciples and people following them, and yeah, some people in that crowd are without a doubt Pharisees looking for opportunity to get rid of them. But what's interesting? Let me tell you what's interesting here. Again, the Pharisees, experts, Jesus says, have you not read? And then he talks about the David situation in verse three. And then in verse five, or have you not read? And then he talks about the priest and the Sabbath. And then he goes on in verse seven to quote Hosea 6, 6. Um, if you had known Hosea 6, 6. Now, the Pharisees, experts, had they read these stories before? Yes. Of course they knew these stories. And then, did they know Hosea 6.6? 6? Yes. Of course they knew these things. But Jesus is making the point to them, you know these things intellectually, but you don't, you've missed the whole point. You've missed, you don't know the true meaning of God's word. You've missed the whole point of God's word. It's like, how many, is, is it possible to be a scholar and an expert in the Bible and not be a Christian. For sure. It's all over the place. There are tons of seminaries, universities, with people who know God's word from an intellectual standpoint far greater than I will ever know them. They do it for a living, literally day in and day out, study God's word, write books about it write papers about it, yet they miss the whole point. They don't even know Christ. They don't even know the author of the word. So basically, but they also, or do you think that they won't cover understanding the Bible because they don't know what they're reading? Right, absolutely. Yeah, they can, you can know God's word without knowing it. That's the point Jesus is making to the Pharisees here. You know God's word, but you don't know it. You've read these stories, but you've missed the whole point. 
You, you've, you've read these things, but you've missed the whole point. And, and verse 4, again, like, uh, like we mentioned, it's a reference to 1 Samuel 21, David and Ahimelech. And um, Alejandro's point is really good, that it, it's a recognition that it's not about breaking God's law. Breaking God's law is not okay, but it's a recognition that um, certain aspects of God's law supersede such as love, mercy, and the ultimate path of David's life and God's purposes for David. Um, And then he goes into the um, temple work in verse 5 and 6. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you, that something greater than the temple is here. Do you know how big of a bombshell verse 6 would have been? Remember, like, the things that the Pharisees really hung to as, a, as their national identity, the Sabbath, which Jesus is now saying here, like, hey, I have authority. I'm, I am, <laughs> Hebrews is going to say that Jesus really is now our Sabbath. Like Hebrews says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. You got the Sabbath, the one of their big pieces of identity, and then the temple. Like those are two of the big three. For Jesus to say that something greater than the temple is here, like that's just either he is God and Lord or that's blasphemy. There's no two options there. The, the, or no other options. There's only two options there. Jesus is either Lord, God, or it's blasphemy. And the point that Jesus is making there is he is Lord. Um, if, wouldn't they, if they accuse Jesus, they'd also have to accuse David, right? Because if they're saying that, if they're telling Jesus that he's in trouble for breaking the law, wouldn't they also have to accuse David? Yeah, and Jesus would also be making the point there that somebody, which he does at other places, he says something greater than the temple is here. You'd also hear Jesus saying something greater than David is here, right? Like David calls the Messiah in his Psalms, Lord. But Christ is greater than the temple. He, he is very directly confronting them with two critical, critical truths. One, Christ has authority over all these things. Christ is greater than the temple. Christ is Lord. And second, their full system of legalism and religion has missed the point. Verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. Hosea 6 6. That's the second time, right, that he's accused them of missing the point of Hosea 6 6. Think back um, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Yeah, that's a great question. We'll get to that in just a second. Remind me to talk about it in case we don't. Um, 
um, Matthew 9.13. Here in Matthew 9, Jesus uh, has called Matthew, and Matthew was a tax collector, which again was just an extraordinarily hated group of people. And after calling Matthew, Matthew has Jesus back at his house with other tax collectors and sinners, it tells us in chapter 9, that Jesus is eating with. In verse 11 of chapter 9, when the Pharisees saw this, the same group, they said to the disciples of Jesus, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. He quotes Hosea 6, 6 again. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Why was Hosea 6, 6 such a prominent verse? It's because when Hosea 6, 6, the context is that verse there, the nation of Israel, their hearts were very, very far from God. Their hearts were full of sin, full of deceit, had no love for God, had no knowledge of God, yet they were still observing all these outward acts of ritual and religion. So they were um, honoring God with their mouth. They were saying that they were saying all the right things. They were doing all the sacrifices. They were conducting themselves in the temple as if they were faithful followers of God, but it was all external. The problem was they were honoring God with their mouth, with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. One second. They were they were doing all these things externally, but their hearts were far from God. They were missing the entire point. God doesn't need people to worship him by sacrificing animals or just simply paying him lip service. God calls us to worship him from the heart, from hearts of repentance and love and faith in him. It's like us. We can come to church every single Sunday, every single Wednesday. We can get baptized, do communion, and externally do all the right things while still having hearts that are very far from God. Do you see that? Do you see how that's possible? If people can think that you are just a great kid, you are so well behaved, you're so respectful, you you make great grades, you you don't drink, smoke, or cuss, but you do everything right externally, but your heart is still very far from God. And Jesus would tell you the exact same thing he tells the Pharisees. You're missing the whole point. God desires righteousness from the heart, righteousness that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. He desires compassion, not a sacrifice. He desires a heart that loves him. Now, why don't we do the Sabbath anymore? Um, Well, I think there's a few different things. First of all, the New Testament, you look at the New Testament And the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Nine of the Ten Commandments are commanded to us in the New Testament. Which one of the ten is not commanded to us in the New Testament? Uh, Sabbath. Sabbath. So that's, that's interesting, right? That's circumstantial, though. But it is an interesting thing. 
And then also, though, Paul, Paul's talking about when it comes to the outward acts of religion, or I'm, I'm not, the he says like the keeping of rituals, the keeping of the Old Testament um, ceremonies and festivals and holidays. Paul says like, hey. Those things don't apply anymore. In fact, don't let any of his exact words or don't let people judge you in regards to the festivals, the ceremonies and the Sabbaths specifically. He mentions that like the, don't let people judge you in regard to the Sabbath and the New Testament church. They immediately begin to celebrate the Lord's Day, the resurrection of Christ and no longer the Sabbath, the Gentiles, when they convert to Christianity, the Sabbath is not something that is laid upon them as a requirement for them to keep. And when you get to Hebrews, when we get to it and with Dusty here, I think it's chapter four of Hebrews. Yeah, chapter four of Hebrews tells us really an echo of John chapter 11, that the Sabbath was made for rest. Jesus Christ is now our rest. Um, verse eight of uh, verse nine of chapter four in Hebrews says there does remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and that rest is Jesus Christ. Verse ten for the one who has entered His rest, the rest of Jesus Christ, has also rested from His work as God did from His. So I would say that those would be like the main reasons why we don't do the Sabbath anymore from Friday night to Saturday night. That's a great question. Um, so what lessons do we take away from this confrontation between Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees? I think it comes down to this. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't miss the point of God's truth and God's word. It, as you sit here and you listen every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night to um, the word of God taught, does it impact your heart? Does it, impact, does, does it change who you are? Like, do you truly have faith? And the things that you're hearing. Or. Are you stuck in a pattern. Of hearing. And just getting intellectual knowledge. Is, is what you hear intellectual knowledge. Or is it something that. Is changing your life. It, the, the life change comes. From the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. It, it comes from accepting the call that Jesus offers at the end of chapter 11. Quit striving to earn God's favor yourself. Quit trying to simply be a good kid. Quit trying to do all the external things. Instead, come to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Find your rest in Him. Strive to know Him. Then your life will truly change in a way that is eternally meaningful. 
then the Holy Spirit truly will produce righteousness in your life. It's easy for us to fall into the trap of being Pharisees, right? Like, it's right as a church that we have a priority on a high view of God's Word. And it's right as a church that we take very serious studying and learning God's Word. But there's a danger there. A danger that can happen when we become legalistic about it or when we start to think that... um, that it's really just about us and what we know. The reality is we need Jesus Christ, recognizing who he is, the son of God, and giving our life to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for um, your love for us, that uh, you're merciful, you're compassionate, that despite our shortcomings, you cover them up. You cover them in your grace with your forgiveness. And just pray, Lord, that those realities, those truths would sink deep into our heart, that our lives would be changed by them, that it wouldn't be intellectual knowledge, but that we would give ourselves fully to them, mind and heart, that our hearts would be completely yours, that you would grow us in our love for you and obedience to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.